From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. And welcome to a Monday edition of EWTN's Open Line, and we celebrate today Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. We have the our culture has so secularized everything that you really only ever hear Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we don't want to discount his academic achievements, but he was Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. longer than he was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we want to make sure we acknowledge that. So we've got a very special mailbag edition of uh, EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio today. And um, we're going to empty out the mailbag so we won't be taking your phone calls. But if you would like to be part of a future mailbag show, just send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. And our host, as he is on uh, all of these very special mailbag editions of EWTN's Open Line Monday, Father John Tregilio, how are you? Fine. How are you today? Terrific. You just like me because I give you more than 60 seconds to answer a question. <laughs> <laughs> Referencing, of course, you and Father Brigenti's uh, <laughs> series, Catholic Blitz. Blitz, yes. <laughs> First question today is from John in Nebraska, and he says, My grandmother passed away a couple of weeks ago, and in going through her belongings, my parents gave me an old crucifix that she had. The only thing my dad can think of is it was either my great or great-great-grandmother's Last Rites Crucifix. It has a sticker on the back that reads, To this crucifix is attached the plenary indulgence of uh, in the hour of death. From what we know, it has just been passed down from generation to generation, so it was a nice family heirloom, to say the least. In what little research I could dig up, an apostolic indulgence was mentioned. I'm wondering what this crucifix was originally used for, where it possibly came from, and if the indulgence is still attached, and how it works in the hour of death. Okay, well, uh, with the revised anointing of the sick after the Second Vatican Council, uh, part of the ritual is that the apostolic pardon, which has the plenary indulgence available, uh, is part of the, the rite itself. So it's no longer limited to just the crucifix. And if someone's being anointed and they're dying, the priest gives the apostolic pardon. And if they are free from all attachment, even the venial sin, then they do have the possibility of receiving a, a full plenary indulgence, which is the full remission of temporal punishment due to sin. If there's any attachment, then it defaults from a plenary indulgence to a partial indulgence. Um, in the old days, they would uh, give the indulgence to the crucifix, um, but now with the ritual, it's automatic. Uh, the priest should say that um, at when he, after he anoints the person. Uh, Gina writes in from the Republic of Texas, As a child, I was taught to be self-reliant and independent in order to be a positive member of society. Although my parents conveyed the Catholic faith to me in earnest, little was said about surrendering to God. Decades have passed. Although I'm not resisting God, I struggle with exactly how to surrender completely. I do pray a novena of surrender to the will of God by Father Don Delino Rutolo, 
I'd honestly like to get the hang of this before the end of my life, <laughs> if for no other reason than, to, than out of gratitude and reverence for God. He is deserving of all my love in the act of contrition. Any suggestions? Uh, yes. Uh, there's not a per- one particular way, but certainly there are different helps. Uh, basically, surrendering your, yourself to the will of God is is easier said than done. But something that St. John the Baptist said in the gospel, I must decrease so he can increase. So basically what we're doing is we're surrendering our will and replacing it with God's will. And we're saying to, to the Lord, what you want is what I want, as opposed to the other way around. When Many times when we pray, we're trying to negotiate with God and say, I have a better plan. But uh, it, practice makes perfect. And so every day when we wake up, it's a good thing to make that your first intention of the day, that you want to do the will of the Lord, uh, however uh, that is manifested to you. And certainly uh, prayer and discernment, receiving the sacraments will fine-tune and help you uh, getting a good spiritual director or a regular confessor as well. And uh, that way you you try your best to ascertain where is the Lord leading you. Uh, obviously you still have your free will, but you can freely relinquish it and say, I'm replacing my will with God's will. And that's basically what our what the Blessed Mother did. Be it done to me according to thy will. Again, a very special mailbag edition today of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls. Um, Teresa says, I have a couple of questions, please. Number one, I get extremely emotional and crying during Mass, especially during the Eucharist and also during parts of Mother Angelica Live. This emotion feels like great thankfulness, but I want to make sure I'm not misinterpreting it as need for forgiveness or Satan intervening. Uh, well, I would say, you know, being um, I'm Italian, so we're emotional <laughs> by nature, <laughs> uh, whether we cry, scream, rant, or rave. Um, so the expression of emotion in and of itself is neutral. It's certainly you, you want it, you just don't want to let it go haphazardly or without any prudential um, supervision. So you just don't want to be crying at the drop of a hat. But sometimes things do move us. I mean, ever since my mom and dad died and my and my brothers and my sister, you know, certainly there are occasions where I'm, I, I think of them and I um, move to the, to the point of tears because obviously I was very close to them. Um, when I'm celebrating Mass, it's a very emotional time. But you have to always ask yourself, you know, is this something that's considered going a little bit too far or is it happening too often? Um, but I wouldn't cons- worry that this is somehow the devil doing something unless you're sad about something that you should not be sad about. Uh, if you're crying in tears of sadness when it should be a, a moment of joy or vice versa. And then her second question is, I am a very happily married woman with three wonderful children, but at times I wonder if God's calling for me was to devote my entire life to being to God by being a nun. At times I'm very confused about my calling and purpose for God. Well, you're, you're not alone. There are many people who, you know, don't have what we call metaphysical certitude about their particular vocation. The point is, though, you did get married, so you, 
received the grace of that sacrament in the same way uh, I got ordained as a priest. I got the grace of the sacrament. And even if somewhere along the line you say, well, maybe that wasn't the best decision. Maybe I could have or should have. The point is that's not where you're at. And the Lord has blessed you certainly with children that would not have existed had you not got married. And even if somehow you, you thought to yourself, boy, maybe I should have. The thing is, you did go this way, and it was a good choice. It may not have been the absolute best, but you made it in good faith. And like I said, because you got the sacrament of matrimony, all the more reason to be faithful to that and have no regrets. Uh, again, a special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Lynn writes in, Do you have any words of advice for me as I'm at home with COVID and not doing badly, but have begun having anxiety and cannot pray my way out of it? The underlying attacks can be debilitating, and it's like a roller coaster of fear and trembling sometimes. Are there any scripture readings or saints readings you could recommend? Well, certainly I can identify with uh, the fact that I, I had COVID myself, COVID pneumonia um, over a year ago. And uh, so I know, you know, it can be anxiety causing and, uh, you know, the, the disease itself, uh, the complications surrounding it, or just life in general can, can bring on anxiety and stress. Um, so whether or not you need medication or any type of counseling, that's something you need to talk over with your doctor, but certainly a good solid prayer life, uh, receiving the sacraments regularly. Now, if you're uh, sick that you can't get out of the house, call the priest. Um, you know, he can certainly come to the house, you can put on a mask, he can hear your confession, bring you communion, anoint you. Uh, certainly, you want sacramental grace uh, to give you that extra strength, you want daily prayer also. And I would start with the spiritual, but also incorporate uh, the temporal. So if you need to speak to uh, your medical doctor, that doesn't discount or replace what you need to do with your parish priest. So I would go for both fronts. And in terms of, of scripture reading, um, read the book of Job, because uh, if anyone needed, had, had reason to be anxious, it would have been him. And although he got no answers, he was able to um, persevere. And also a devotion to Our Lady of Sorrows. Uh, pray the chaplet of, of, of the seven sorrows. Uh, have devotion to Our Lady of Sorrows. I think that will give you some added help. Again, it's a very ma uh, special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. But if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag show, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. That's right. It's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls. Today, we're emptying out the mailbag. Gemma writes in, there is much about the poor in the Bible, Christ's love for the poor, commands to take care of the poor and teaching the poor will always and teaching that the poor will always be with us. This verse from the responsorial psalm, Psalm 72, has me wondering who are the poor? 
financially poor, spiritually poor, intellectually poor, poor due to our own bad choices, all of these. It seems like we are all poor in one way or another. Is that the point? I would appreciate your view on the poor to help me meditate on this. Okay, well, you, you, you touch on a, on a good point, and certainly there are different degrees and types of poverty. Um, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So he uh, makes a, a fine distinction there, too. Um, certainly um, financial poverty, having no money, no job, uh, being homeless, uh, that's a more immediate need, and certainly we have a moral obligation as Christians to do what we can to help those who have that physical poverty, but we're not limited to just that particular kind. And Mother Teresa used to, sometimes people, would, uh, young ladies would, would come from the United States to go to Calcutta, and she'd say, you need to go back to the United States. They have spiritual poverty, and they're in more urgent need. So spiritual poverty, where we certainly see a lot of that here in the States, but also we see physical poverty, homelessness, unemployment, uh, people with, with, with mental uh, disabilities and issues. So I would say the more urgent one is certainly life-sustaining. So somebody who's homeless, somebody who is, has no money, no means of support, uh, they need first attention, but it's not only them. And so you have to triage like you would at the hospital, at the ER. You know, certainly when you walk in, the person who's about ready to keel over dead, they're going to get immediate uh, response and attention. But if someone comes in with a, a nail stuck in their hand, uh, they're going to take care of them as well. They just won't be the head of the line. So I think you can incorporate all those, but you have to do that in, in, in a proper proportion. Uh, we've had some calls come in after hours with some questions for Father, so let's take a listen to one of our listener comment line calls. This is Marguerite in the Midwest. My 30-year-old son, who's away from the church, is confused about in the Old Testament why, after King David committed adultery and had a son, God punished David by inflicting illness on his innocent child and killing him despite David fasting and praying for God to spare him. And he's also wondering why the genocide of Canaanites was ordered to kill even children and infants. Thank you very much. Okay, those are good, powerful questions there. Uh, I'll deal with the easier one first. Uh, when, uh, when God placed a certain uh, people, like the Canaanites, what we call the ban, which meant he wanted them all destroyed, men, women, and children, God is the absolute judge of life and death because he is the author of life. So it is within his purview. He has the absolute right uh, and prerogative to decide when someone dies, how they're going to die. And uh, the worst thing that can happen to a person is not death, and it's not even disease. The worst thing that can happen to a person that they, God forbid, go, go to hell and are never in the presence of God for the rest of eternity Um if someone is is killed by at God's command, whether it was uh, King David's uh, son, who was the the fruit of of an adulterous relationship, or was the Canaanites, or any other of the peoples that the Lord specifically directed had to be killed at that moment, um, that didn't mean that those people ended up in hell. Uh, when they died, again, whether you you died of drowning or earthquake or natural death, um, you know. When Cain killed Abel, you know, that was a horrible thing. It wasn't at God's command that that happened. But again, 
we want to keep the proper perspective. And I know people who are questioning the faith or a little bit uh, doubting, like your son, uh, they're going to be looking for an easy answer. Uh, there is none. But we have to trust in the mercy of God as well as uh, count on his divine justice. Uh, Boyd writes in on this open line Monday mailbag edition, uh, the church is unclear on the subject of human origins. Can you recommend books or DVDs that argue both the pros and cons behind theistic evolution versus biblical creation? Modern sciences do support biblical creation like genetic entropy and paleontology research with soft tissue in dinosaur bones. Who in the church is looking into these exciting new areas? <laughs> um, <laughs> I know they. I, I think are. I can. I think I can tell you who isn't. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I no particular book comes to my mind, but I do know this: that uh, you know, again, uh, because of the recent uh, advances in science, um, some agnostic doctors in the early 1980s in England uh, discovered that the whole human race. All men and women who've ever lived on this earth and will ever live on this earth uh, can be traced to one woman through what they call mitochondrial DNA. And when they made that report, the secular media uh, called her Eve. Well, they didn't like that because they were agnostic, but they used the word Eve because Eve is, in the Bible, the mother of all the living. And theologically, we believe in monogenism, that the human race comes from one set of parents, not several, which would be polygenism. Pope Pius XII uh, made that very clear in his encyclical Humani Generis. So we do believe that the human race, and there is there can be room for theistic evolution as long as you keep open that essential component that this is at God's will, that there is a divine intervention in the creation of the immortal soul, and that there is a divine plan, whether you want to call it intelligent design or something else. We're not discounting, uh, you know, biblical creation. We're not discounting evolution. We said there can be a happy balance of both. Um, I think Father William Most uh, wrote something about that, but that was going back maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um, I, I, I don't think, I can't think of anything more current than that. Father Robert Spitzer, the Jesuit, a former president of Gonzaga University and a EWTN favorite, never a bad resource for things like this. He speaks to the scientific uh, aspects of our faith with regularity, and you can find his work at magiscenter.com. That's M-A-G-I-S center.com. Uh, let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment calls. This is Scott from Illinois, and I was just curious how Father John got saved. And does he have the assurance of his salvation? Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> uh, I, will t I will explain it this way. I was redeemed by Jesus Christ on Good Friday, and I, God willing, pray that I will be saved. Um, when we use that terminology, redemption took place on Good Friday. Salvation occurs when you're actually in heaven. Uh, the analogy that, that I like, uh, that I stole from Father Levis of Happy Memory, is that if you fall off the boat, okay, and someone throws you a life preserver, you can't say that you're actually saved until you're back on the ship. Uh, the person who throws you the lifeline is your redeemer. Um, the moment of salvation takes place when you're on the ship, but you would also 
refer to the person who threw you that lifeline, you're my savior, but only after you've been saved. So salvation is when we're actually in heaven. Redemption took place uh, on Good Friday, which makes salvation possible, but it's never a foregone conclusion. And this idea of once saved, always saved, well, that only applies once you're in heaven, you can't get out of it. But to say that I'm saved here on earth, it's a contradiction because for you to be saved, you have to actually be in the presence of God, having the beatific vision. Uh, Ama writes in, Hi, my question may be strange, but I have a hard time thinking of St. Anne as our Lord's grandmother. I fully <laughs> and wholly accept, acknowledge, and love that he has a mother, Our Lady, and that St. Anne and St. Joachim were Our Lady's parents. So it should come easily that they are our Lord's grandparents, but it seems so weird to me. I wonder if it's because grandparents are old and God is older. Can you please help me get over this hump? I also enjoy I also enjoy her for me to oh she would also like for uh her uh intercession in finding a man. Um, <laughs> oh, that's right. If you want a man, pray to Saint Anne. That's yeah, what the nuns used that's to right. tell yes, the girls in Catholic right. grade school. <laughs> well, I mean, it, I don't think it's too difficult to grasp if you look at it from a human perspective. Jesus is God and man. He's got a human nature, a divine nature, and in his sacred humanity, you know, his mother's parents are de facto his grandparents, and there's some beautiful artwork and some statues of Saint Anne with Mary as a young girl, and then I saw a few where you've got Saint Anne with Mary and with Jesus. Uh, We don't know. um, It's not mentioned explicitly in sacred scripture. It's not part of sacred tradition that Jesus knew or grew up with his grandparents, like a lot of us, um, I had a few, I had my grandfather, my maternal grandfather died uh, at, when I was a baby, so I never got to know him, but I knew my other grandparents. Um, we don't know, but sacred art depicts Jesus as having contact with, and certainly the Proto-Evangelium of St. James, which is not uh, inspired text, but there's nothing to give us any indication that it was um you know, made up or fictional, uh, does tend to give us this idea that Jesus did know, at least as a young child, uh, his grandparents. So it gives us this beautiful human flavor uh, to Jesus that, remember, he's God and man. So he's got a mother. uh, His mother has a husband. She has a husband, St. Joseph, and he's got grandparents. And I think it was Pope Francis who recently, you know, made this very clear that, um, you know, Grandparents Day, he he wanted on the Feast of St. Joachim and Anne, uh, which is July the 26th, to be a day that grandparents get a, a plenary indulgence if they're properly disposed. Thanks so much. We appreciate the email today. This is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls uh, today. Um, Kimberly writes in, and actually we'll save that one because uh, Kimberly asked to not be identified. So we will <laughs> we will we will sprinkle that one in at a later time. Um, John wants to know. My question is: When Mary comes to Earth in an apparition, does she come in a glorified body or her earthly body? Ah, that's a very, very good question. And there's signs that this person's got some theological acumen, as we would say. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, um, Mary's 
uh, glorified body stays in heaven. And when she makes an apparition, we use that word apparition, which means it's a, it's a, something appears to our uh, senses, and particularly our sense of vision. Our eyes see something, but that doesn't mean that, that her physical body is there. Uh, the image that is perceived is that it's a perception. It's real in the sense that it's actually taking place, but it doesn't mean it has physicality. That, and say, at, at Fatima or Lourdes, um, would you have been able to take a picture of it? Maybe, maybe not. If St. Bernadette went to reach out to Mary, would she have felt something? Maybe, maybe not. But the apparition itself is not the glorified body. It's an, an it's, uh, I don't want to use it to this idea. Yeah, it's EWTN's open line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. That's right. It's a mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. Not taking your calls today as we empty out the mailbag. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag show, send us an email, uh, openline at email at email. How am I doing? Openline at EWTN.com. Uh, be sure to check out The World Over with Raymond Arroyo Thursday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern right here on EWTN Radio and Television. And you can even have reminders about The World Over sent straight to your email inbox. Just go to EWTN.com slash subscribe. Um, we're talking about an email that we received from John who was asking in uh, Marian apparitions if she appears in her glorified body or in her earthly body. Uh, yes, and uh, I believe that gives something that gives us good um, context is something that St. Thomas Aquinas refers to, is that when there's an apparition, uh, whether it's of Jesus uh, or of Our Lady, that it's not the physical, um, risen, glorified body of Christ, it's not the glorified, assumed body of Mary that is there in front of the person. We call it, use the word apparition because it's a phenomenon in which the eyes perceive something. They see uh, Mary or they see Jesus, but it's not the um, matter informed in the, in the sense that it's actually the physical body uh, that our Lord ascended or the physical body of Mary that was assumed into heaven. Uh, it's a sense perception. It's real. It's really that what they're perceiving, but uh, they're not taking up space in in, in that sense. Now, whether or not it could be photographed, you know, that's another question, or if they could actually touch, um, certainly that could be uh, something that could be perceived because that's another one of the five senses. But it's not, it's not that Mary or, or Jesus leave heaven and appear on earth when these apparitions take place. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. My cousin passed away recently after a long battle with cancer. He had been baptized Catholic but has not been practicing recently. His service will be presided over by a Catholic priest. But after the service, his wife plans to take his ashes and distribute them over a pond where his friend lives. My question is, can I go to the distribution of ashes or should I not participate in that? Thank you. 
Ah, uh, yes, I would advise, I would suggest that you not go to the dispersion of the ashes because it goes against our Catholic sensibilities and our Catholic teaching. Um, certainly, the, the most important thing is having the funeral rites, the, the funeral mass. Um, if the spouse is not going to handle the ashes properly, um, you know, that doesn't mean that you, you do it in a way that's not sensitive because they, obviously they're not on the same page with us. Um, I would not impute any particular motives, but it's something that as Catholics we have to avoid and try to discourage people because we want to honor the fact that we believe in the resurrection of the body at the end of time. Uh, besides the scattering, you know, now there's this new phenomenon where people uh, are asked or suggest to bring home uh, a few uh, ounces of the deceased ashes, cremains, that's just as bad as scattering because, you know, it's not like you take up a, a part of grandma and take her home with you. Um, so I would be supportive in terms of being uh, there for them, visit them at home, um, but not participate by going to this event, which, you know, is, is against our, our Catholic beliefs. And how is scattering ashes any different than distributing relics? Well, first of all, the, the, the ashes are purposely destroyed. The relics are natural uh, remains of, of, of one of the saints. A canonized saint uh, is the only one that has a relic. And those, the purpose of cremains is that you intend the body to be destroyed, whereas in relics, uh, that's what's left over after the saint's death. And so it's a, it's, it's a natural thing, a consequence of, of, of how they died, whereas cremains is intentionally uh, do it. Now, uh, the church allows cremation, um, but only if the person is not denying the, the resurrection. Um, cremains cannot be ever considered uh, a relic because they're not, it's not really the person's body anymore. A chemical change takes place when the person is cremated but they still need to be treated with respect, and that means burial. Because even a saint, um, you know, Rome is is not allowing people to be dug up until, you know, the case for canonization and beatification has begun. Um, Steve in Harrisburg, PA, writes in, I love when incense is used at Mass. It seems that incense is used more and more infrequently during Mass now and is often not even used during special Masses like Christmas and Easter Sunday. Why is that? Well, I, I, I don't know what the particular priest <laughs> or pastor has in mind. It's certainly an option. Uh, unlike the Eastern Church, the, the, the Eastern Catholic Church, like the Byzantine and Melkite and Maronites, uh, they use incense all the time. And they use a lot of it, and that's what's required by their their liturgical rite. In the Latin rite, the the one the Roman rite that that uh, I belong to, and most uh, people in the United States who are Catholic belong to, that's an option, and yet it's an option that is exercised at the discretion of the priest who's the celebrant. Um, I had a, some lady report me once to the governor of Pennsylvania that I was violating the Commonwealth's anti-smoking laws because I was burning incense. Um, if someone has a sensitivity to incense, you just need to stay further back or go to a mass where the priest, you know, is not going to be using it, but it's not um, fair to, say to the rest of the congregation, we're going to deprive you of this wonderful uh, application of the idea that, you know, we're um, hylomorphic. We have body and soul. And one of the senses we have is the sense of smell. 
So incense uh, is part of our, our worship. And uh, I know some people do have some particular, uh, you know, it's irritating to them uh, physically. So they just need to be stay further back or go to a mass that doesn't have it. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. We do have some phone calls left over from our listener comment line. Let's take a listen to another of those. Bill from Pennsylvania. I'm calling about when a person dies. My wife died just recently in the state of grace. And no, the body doesn't go to heaven now. What goes to heaven? And when I die before the end of the world, if I get there, what will I see? Her her spiritual body or, or what? I, I'm confused in that. Okay, well, um, ho- hopefully I can dispel some of that confusion for you. Um, when a person dies, it's the separation of body and soul. The soul is immortal. It never dies. And if someone goes to heaven, uh, the, the soul goes to heaven, either directly or after uh, some time in purgatory. Um the resurrection of the body is going to take place at the end of time. So the only two bodies in heaven right now are Jesus and his blessed mother. Now, when you're in heaven before the resurrection of the dead, uh, are you going to be able to recognize uh, people? It's common teaching. It's not dogma, but it's common teaching and an opinion that uh, there'll be some way in which God infuses into your intellect the ability to recognize a soul, because without the body, souls are invisible. So, you know, how would you recognize grandma or grandpa? How would you recognize your wife or your husband? But a lot of spiritual writers and theologians say there's some way in which the Lord can make that possible, because we do believe in the communion of saints, and to have this communio, this union with those who are invisible, there must be a way in which we can ascertain or discern who's there. But at the end of time is when the bodies will be raised, and if those people are in heaven, their bodies will be glorified, um, their bodies will become immortal and be reunited with their soul. Uh, the souls in hell, however, will have their bodies reunited, they'll be immortal, but they won't be glorified. So uh, if your wife's in heaven, I'm, and I hope and pray that she is, uh, her soul will be up there, and if you get up there, your soul will be there, uh, Hope and I firmly believe that you'll be know each other at that moment. Also, your bodies will come back. We believe in the resurrection. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're not taking your phone calls today. We're emptying out the mailbag. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag show, simply send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. Uh, Or you can even ask us a question on Twitter. Follow us at EWTN Radio and use the hashtag OpenLine. Dieter wants to know, what do I say to people who say that Christmas is a pagan day, that Christians have co-opted Mithra, Saturnalia, (laughs) etc. for its own purposes? Well, I know that's something that's been going around for a while, that the Christians stole or appropriated this pagan uh, feast day. But uh, more recent... uh, Scholarship has been done, and I just was on retreat with Father Brigenti, and we were listening to Pope Benedict's book, Jesus of Nazareth, The Infancy Narratives, and in there he makes a very good explanation of why Christmas 
is celebrated at the appropriate time. Uh, whether or not it was on exactly December the 25th, we don't have a birth certificate for Jesus. Uh, that didn't exist back then. Uh, but the church um, certainly celebrated uh, early on uh, the um, incarnation uh, when Jesus was conceived in his mother's womb on March 25th. And uh, that was celebrated with regularity first, and then doing the math nine months later uh, is when they celebrated uh, his birthday. And also uh, St. Augustine says it makes good sense because uh, in the part of the world where Jesus was born, um, that we have the uh, shortest day of the year and then begins uh, an increase of daylight. John the Baptist was born. We celebrate his birth in June. Um, that's when the, the um, we have the longest day of the year. Then the light begins to decrease. John said, I must decrease heat so he can increase. Jesus is the light of the world. So St. Augustine says that to celebrate Christmas in December makes sense. But like I said, read Pope Benedict's book, and it'll even be more um, convincing to you. Uh, again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're not taking your phone calls, but we do have some phone calls that were left on our listener comment line. Let's take a listen to another one of those. Hi, uh, my name's Don, and I live in New Jersey, and I have a problem. I don't think the priest likes me, and it gets in my head, and I haven't been going to Mass for a while, and... Uh, also, what's the minimum age for dispensation? I know asking for it in this way may not be bad, but that's it. Thank you. Bye. Okay, I, I'm not sure exactly what, what dispensation he was looking for. Um, first of all, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that he feels the priest may not like him. Um, that, that may be true, and that's not right if it is the case. Uh, as a priest... You know, we're supposed to love everyone, and we're supposed to love our parishioners. Um, but if the priest doesn't like you, you know, uh, that should not be reason for you to stay away. Because if I don't like the doctor, I either find another doctor uh, or I put up with his peculiarity because I need a doctor, especially when I'm sick. We need a priest uh, to go to confession. We need a priest so that we can go to Mass and receive uh, the Holy Eucharist and when we have to be anointed. Um, so I'm not making excuses for any of my colleagues or brethren out there, but your need spiritually outweighs even the, the, the ease or, or uh, possible removal of discomfort. But I would say go to another parish if, if, if that's possible, or if that's not, still go to church. Don't um, you know, uh, spite yourself and, and hurt yourself spiritually because of this guy, especially even if he is, uh, the priest is not what he should be. And we have that out there. We have bad doctors. We got bad priests. But you need the sacraments. You need sacramental grace. You need to go to church. Uh, you need to go to confession. Um, so I would say use that as a means to help yourself. Say, I have to overcome this to the extent that um, not, not that you know you, you make him like you, but that you need what he provides more than you need his his affectivity that he likes you. Um, and certainly, I, I will keep you in my prayers. Be sure to join us this Saturday for our live coverage of the Walk for Life West Coast, and uh, coverage begins at two thirty p.m. Eastern time, right here at EWTN Television and Radio.
Um, Sharon writes in, greetings. I belong to an ecumenical Bible study in our neighborhood. I'm the only Roman Catholic in the group. One lady attacked our Pope, stating he is evil and one more indication of the end times. I did not respond. Please help me understand where she's coming from. <laughs> well, <laughs> I have a few ideas. <laughs> um, if, if you're going to, ha- if people like that are going to be at this Bible study, then maybe you, you need to find another one. Um, I think it's nice to have ecumenical bi- Bible study because, you know, uh, we certainly share. Uh, our, our belief that the sacred scripture is inspired. But as Catholic Christians, we also believe that sacred tradition uh, is as much revelation as uh, sacred scripture. Uh, so I'm not saying that you're, you should limit yourself to only Catholic Bible study, but you should have some Catholic Bible study in addition to uh, if you're going to have an ecumenical um, Bible study. And you know, you're not going to convince her otherwise, but you know, there was this, this goes back to the time of Martin Luther, uh, uh, who founded the, the Reformation, that they were accusing the, the Pope, the, the Bishop of Rome, uh, as being the Antichrist or being the, uh, some other sundry characters in in the, the Book of Revelation or the Apocalypse. Um, obviously, that wasn't the case at the time of Martin Luther. It's not the case now. Um, you know, non-Catholics don't have to like or accept the, the authority of, of the, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, but that's still who he is. And as Catholics, you know, we have to obey and respect uh, who's, who's holding that office as, as the vicar of Christ, successor of St. Peter. Um, but if non-Catholics, you know, don't believe who he is, that's their problem. You know, I, I believe that's who he is. That's what Catholics must believe uh, who he is. And if they do some research, you know, they, they would be able to see that, you know, this is a direct connection, a direct lineage because he's the successor of St. Peter. And Peter was directly appointed by Christ to to lead the church. So you can't get anything more scriptural than that. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Yes, hello. Uh, Just a quick question for Father Tragelio. Does the church, does the Catholic church teach what the souls are occupied by? When in heaven. Okay. Uh, was he asking about the soul? Yes, that's right. What the soul occupies. Okay. Well, I think that's similar to what another person had asked. Uh, the soul doesn't take up space, so it doesn't have mass. Um, not capital M A S S, which is going to church, but small m, meaning you know using physics. Uh, it has no weight. Uh, because it's it's immaterial, uh, it's invisible, immaterial. So uh, it doesn't do anything except it has what we call faculties: the intellect and the will. And the intellect wants to know the truth. The will wants to be in possession of the good. And in heaven, the soul is perfectly satisfied because we see God face to face, which is called the beatific vision. And our intellect is completely filled and satisfied because we're before truth itself, all truth. And we're, our will is also perfectly satisfied because we're in, in the possession, in the presence of the sumum bonum, the supreme good. Um, but not until the resurrection of the body and you have the reunion of body and soul uh, are there any physical uh, characteristics uh, to that. Uh, Mike writes in, Dear Father John, recently my wife's niece and her boyfriend had their second child, and it's apparent they are not planning to get married. 
My wife and I sent them a new baby card, which contained a congratulations in it. Do you think that was appropriate? I think it could be because all life is a blessing, regardless of their cohabitating status. Uh, yes, I mean, congratulating new parents, uh, I don't see uh, uh, that there's an issue with that. You just don't want to condone the fact that, you know, they're doing this out of wedlock. But honoring and cherishing and reverencing the child is a good thing. And the baby can and should be baptized. Um, we do not compel or force the parents to get married in order to have their child baptized. But it's a good opportunity for uh, parents who would be more likely uh, to get married to say, well, this would be a good time, you know, to, to tie the knot um, so that then they can receive the sacraments. Um, but we can't make it as a condition because then, you know, th that would invalidate the, the free will uh, for the sacrament of, of matrimony. But I would certainly honor the fact that, you know, this is a new life. It's their child. It's your grandchild. Um, but use your influence too and say, you know, um, you know, I hope to be invited to the baptism and, uh, you know, that's going to require that they, uh, at least make arrangements. Again, it's not going to compel them to get married and leave cohabitation, but it might be a good opportunity. And that's what we like to look at. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's open line Monday. We're not taking your phone calls today. But uh, let's listen to another call that was left after hours for us. Ciao, Father Tagilio. It's Ron from Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. Hope all is well with you. Question on the three days of darkness. I know some saints and mystics have talked in some detail about that. But what is the position of the Catholic Church? Thank you. Okay, it's nice to hear uh, a, a kindred spirit <laughs> uh, from my former um, place of residence. I was very close nearby in Marysville and Duncannon. Uh, the three days of darkness are part of private revelation. It has not been condemned by the church. It has not been officially endorsed by the church. Uh, so anything that we read about that is optional. In the same way, believe it or not, uh, Fatima and Lourdes are private revelation. Uh, I believe it, that it was true, that it happened. Um, the church says it's worthy of, of belief, and pr people can go visit Fatima and Lourdes. But you can still be a good Catholic and, and say, I don't believe that Mary did appear to St. Bernadette or to the three children, because it's not what we call public revelation that ended with the death of St. John. So three days of darkness, you know, is something that you can believe in or you don't have to believe in. Uh, as long as it does not, con anything about it does not contradict what's in public revelation. So anytime you have somebody saying, uh, Mary said this, um, you know, there was a alleged apparition up in New York state where our lady was saying that the Pope wasn't the Pope and he was a, uh, a an actor impersonating him or that she knew when the end of the world was going to be and she was going to tell people, well, Jesus says, you know, not the day nor the hour. So how's his mother going to contradict him? So that's why you have to be cautious with private revelation. I'm not saying that private revelation is false. The church doesn't say it's false, but in some cases it may be. But endorsing something or not taking a position are two different things. Uh, Gary writes in, can I have a mass said for someone I only knew over the Internet and never met in real life? 
Yes. <laughs> I mean, I as a priest, I offer mass for people I've never known, um, and you certainly can have masses offered for a deceased person that that you you may not have known or you knew very parenthetically. Um, the point is that having a mass celebrated, uh, especially for a departed soul, is the best thing that could be done for somebody. So your l- levels of um, of uh, knowledge of that person or um, I forget whether there was a movie about uh, uh, different levels of uh, degrees of, of, of um, relationship. It doesn't matter. It matters that the mass is offered. Um, and we got a, this is an interesting email because it, this topic came up on an open line episode last week as well. Anthony wants to know, can you explain the conflict between Peter and Paul? Someone told me they were preaching two different gospels. No, no. Uh, <laughs> It was more of a personality issue, just like um, Peter had a fight with Barnabas, and it was not theological. It was because uh, uh, Barnabas's uh, cousin, St. Mark, was a bit of an impetuous uh, young man, and he had got homesick, and uh, that kind of ticked off St. Paul. So him and Barnabas had a bit of a tiff. Uh, St. Paul and St. Peter had a difference of opinion on you know how to— deal with new Christians who did not come in through Judaism as they did, and so they had a difference of opinion, but it was settled at the Council of uh, Jerusalem. Um, you know, St. Paul, you know, it, one could say, well, he, he he won out at the end. Well, it wasn't his final decision to make. Uh, he was able to convince, and certainly St. Peter had that dream uh, where the things from the sky fell down and he was told it's not what takes you, what you take on the outside, it's what's on the inside. So uh, St. Peter and St. Paul, they're co-patrons of the city of Rome. That should tell you right there. And finally, to close out today's show, Paul wants to know what the church's view on the rapture is. Again, <laughs> it's like private revelation. Uh, we have no particular uh, position on it. That it's that the church doesn't condemn it. The church doesn't endorse it. Uh, it's not part of scripture. If you were to ask Martin Luther, Swingley, Huss, or Calvin, they wouldn't know what you're talking about because it was an invention of the 19th century. Um, this whole idea that it's absolutely going to take place—that's uh, that's an opinion. But the church is is sort of neutral on it. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Benedicat vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks uh, so much for tuning in to this mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Back at it again tomorrow with Father Wade. Until then, God bless.